Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We're your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 12, The Pride That Goes Before the Fall, where we will be discussing chapters 26 through 27 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of hubris. As always, we will start with a short explanation of our podcast. In this podcast, we reread The Name of the Wind and will eventually get to The Wise Man's Fear. And we will be examining a section of each of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. After that, we will take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phonemos of the week, and then expand our understanding of our own world with interesting facts. At the end, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Now, as always, we have a few little disclaimers. First of all, we're not in any way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we're not opposed to forging such a partnership in the future. Second of all, we assume that you are familiar with these books and you have read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and the ancillary materials, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, and The Lightning Tree. Needless to say, from this point forward, here be spoilers. Specifically, I will probably start talking about things that happen around 300 pages from where we are right now. Some of this stuff will make more sense if you've read the books. And as always, let's try and be kind to one another. So now it is time for our 30-second recap. It is my turn to provide it this week. And if I fail, Phoenix is going to make me eat a cherry. Again. Don't even remind me. It wasn't that bad. All right. uh, You mind getting a timer ready for me? I don't mind in the slightest. Thank you. I have my timer ready. In three, two, one, go. Kvothan acts a vengeance so petty it makes Pike go sweaty and causes escalation that overrides elation. Later we meet Scarpy the Sage who tells stories without a page and spends a tale of Lanray's fall which brings down a wall in Kvoth's mind and leads him to find... The missing pieces of intellect and the forces that intersect to set Kvothe on the path to executing his wrath. Just under 20 seconds. That's right. No cherries for me today. Not today. Not today. That's all I can say. There will be a day, but it is not this day. Not this day. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about hubris. Hubris is a concept from Greek mythology that literally translates to the pride that goeth before the fall. Now, it's not that all pride is bad, but it's when you think that you are more important than you actually are, more powerful than you actually are. This is the sort of thing that typically happens when the hero thinks that they have the upper hand and they push their advantage only to overextend themselves and ultimately ends up leading to ruin. Examples of this would be Achilles thinking of himself as invincible and then pushing himself only to fall when Paris manages to shoot an arrow into his heel, the one part of himself that was not invulnerable. 
Now, hubris can take many forms. Sometimes it takes the form of thinking that your own immediate needs supersede the needs of any other person, that your own pain overrides all other concerns, and it leads to great tragedy when that happens. So in this section, we start off with Kvothe hearing tales of a storyteller down at the docks. And he's initially hesitant to go because he's made an enemy for life in the form of Pike. And then we get into the story of how he's exacerbated the status of enemy in a way that actually humanizes Pike. I view them sort of like Tom and Jerry. While Tom may be occasionally antagonistic, Ultimately, Jerry incites most of the conflict, and indeed escalates it. So in this case, Kvothe follows Pike back to Pike's hideout, and then proceeds to burn everything that Pike holds dear. This, of course, leads to an escalation and a fight, and he ends up getting stabbed for his troubles. So, in terms of specifically humanizing Pike... And also putting a mirror between Pike and Kvothe. Pike has things that he will never be able to get back, hidden away, the same way that Kvothe hides Ben's book. There seems to be the implications of a lost mother in the form of that portrait on the sailcloth. And the curl of golden hair. Right. All of that means that he's just as broken as Kvothe is, and... Just as Pike destroyed Kvothe's loot, Kvothe does the same thing to Pike and burns all of these things that are precious in, in a fit of cruelty. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he then proceeds to further escalate things by dousing Pike in some high-proof alcohol and then setting him on fire. Let's be real here. Kvothe is super unlikable at that moment. He has become just as cruel and harsh and vindictive as Pike is. There's not a whole lot of moral daylight between the two. He has become Pike's villain in the same way that Pike is his villain. At this point, we see a side of Quoth that puts his own pain above any other pain that anyone else might be suffering. We see him not being empathetic, but in fact, just vindictive. He is no longer a sympathetic character in my eyes. This side of him is something that we'll see throughout the stories as one of, I think, his crucial character flaws. He does not get outside of his own head very easily, and he tends to believe the myths about himself a little too readily. And he also views other people as characters in his story. Even people that he's friendly with, he does not spend much time trying to actually get to know them. He doesn't view them as complex human beings. They don't get the same level of agency in his mind that he should have. Which I will point out is a strong criticism of this book, especially when it comes to the female characters. A lot of people, when you bring up this book, are like, I like the prose, I like the story, I think that Patrick Rothfuss is shirt at writing women characters. He is also shirt at writing side characters. Or Kvothe is shirt at describing side characters. I think it's a fair critique of the books. 
and it's a fair critique of Quoth. I kind of get the feeling that Quoth is the sort of insufferably performatively woke sort who will walk around with a t-shirt that says this is what a feminist looks like and while also wearing his fedora yeah yeah there's a lot of that at a certain point there is a blurred line between both telling the story and patrick rothis writing the story having almost no other examples of his writing to check the way that he writes women i really can't tell if it's just a flaw in the author or if it's a flaw in the character but it really doesn't matter at this point all we have is the story that is written and maybe we'll see both grow a bit in the third and final volume that would be great i'm not going to rule that out but as it stands, this is a legitimate weakness within the text. So then we have Quoth journeying down to the pub where Scarpy waits. Scarpy being the mysterious storyteller. One of the things that I picked up on that isn't strictly related to our theme here, but I just found amusing. There's a little girl at the half mast who says, I want to hear about the dry lands over the storm wall, about the sand snakes that come out of the ground like sharks, and the dry men who hide under the dunes and drink your blood instead of water, and basically she wants to hear Frank Herbert's dune, which I don't blame her. (laughs) The room is full of children, 15 and younger, and Quoth says, The children watched Scarpy with a familiar intensity that I couldn't quite identify. And not being a parent, not being a person who is around children very often, there is a thing that happens that I swear didn't happen when we were kids that is an adult in a room full of children going, one, two, three, eyes on me. And then all of them just move their heads and look at the teacher all in unison. And it's just creepy as fork. In my previous life as a camp counselor, that trick worked wonders. But that's what that reminds me of. After spending any amount of time in the chaos that is a whole gaggle of children, that silence stops being creepy and starts being blessed. Then you've got, of course, the usual swarm of requests. And finally, Quoth seems to recover a bit of himself that's been missing since he lost his parents. And he asks for Lanray, which was the story that his father had been working on. His father had been working on the story of the Chandrian. Lanray's story is like a preamble. Yeah. What we then get is this oral history of an ancient empire, you know, at the dawn of time before any written words were recorded. It seems like a story that's been passed down over generations and generations. There's nothing in the history books about it because even the history books that thought it was a rumor have all crumbled to dust. There's an element of the supernatural when it comes to Scarpy, but we're looking at it through a broken 15-year-old's memory. This story will come up again within The Wise Man's Fear, where Quoth takes Scarpy's word as gospel, that Scarpy is infallible, that Scarpy's version of this tale is a thousand percent correct, that he is able to correctly pronounce all of these ancient words and city names, and Quoth well actually is the shirt 
out of Denna when she mispronounces Myrterineal. Yeah, and given what ended up happening to Quoth's parents because they got too close to the truth about the Chandrian and Lanray, if this version is at all accurate, how the hell is Scarpy still alive? He travels? So did Quoth's parents. <laughs> like They lived traveling. They got killed when they stayed put one time. For all of six hours. <laughs> Scarpy spends every day down at the same pub and tells stories at the same time. You make a good point, sir. So while it is a great story, as far as its veracity, there's something to be doubted there. Although at the end, he very clearly says, this is accurate. Which either means he's... Bullshitting. Or the Chandrian don't care. Or he's wrong. Or he's wrong. He may sincerely believe it. That's the third possibility. True. And let's face it, oral history is always subject to mutation. So, with a ritualistic air... Scarpy sits down to tell his tale. He has an arbitrary time limit set of how fast it will take him to drink his drink. And at the end of his drink, it will all be done. It lends weight to the mysticism and mystery that surrounds the character. And the way his voice is described is deep and smooth. I kind of picture it sounding sort of like Morgan Freeman. That's what I was going to say. That deep honeyed voice that's friendly, but it's sweet and just enough roughness to it that it carries resonance. So what you're saying is that this reminds you of March of the Penguins and or the Shawshank Redemption. Just a little bit. Gotcha. Within this story, we've got several examples of hubris. Pretty much all of our principal characters exhibit hubris of one form or another. The first we're introduced to is Celatos, who's the Lord of Mere Terennial, who is known to be an expert namer who is able to see all things as they actually are. I'm going to interrupt you really quickly. I'm apologizing now. But I like that there is a specific sentence here. Just by looking at a thing, Celatos could see its hidden name and understand it. I think that Kvothe has this power as well, but only when he is in a flow state and isn't thinking about it. One of the strongest examples of this to me is how he is talking to the horse trader when he needs to get from Emre to Traven, which happens in 300 pages from now. He sits there and he talks to the horse, trying to calm it down, it doesn't matter what he's saying, he's just babbling at this point, and he's trying to find an appropriately stately name for the horse. And he's trying to remember other languages, and he has a hard time remembering specific vocabulary words. So he tries to kind of bullshit his way through when he cannot remember the Shaldish word for twilight. And he tries to think of how you would say first night, but instead he winds up saying one sock, which is prophetic because this completely black Kershayan horse has actually been painted with boot black 
on his one sock, one white leg. There are a couple of other times, and I suspect that Denna's name is one of those times where Kvothe accurately names things or people, because Denna changes her name constantly, and we don't know if Denna's name changes are similar to the way that Kvothe becomes Coat, or if they're just aliases. But Kvothe never winds up calling her anything other than Denna, and I wonder if there's a little bit of that naming there. Just something to keep an eye on. What we have here is Selatos, circling back, who can read the hearts of men like heavy-lettered books. It's this foresight that keeps his city secure in the creation war, which is an amorphous war against an unnamed party. We never really find out who they were fighting. We just know that there was a lot of strife and turmoil. And it's Selatos's ability to see the future and to see things as they are that keeps the city safe and also keeps it just, which again is a lot of faith to have in a single person's discretion. We're just told that he was simply perfect in his judgment. And in fact, I think he got so used to it that as we shall see, it will lead to his downfall. This story in certain ways mirrors the story that Trappist told in the basement. There is talk about seven cities. Originally, it says there are eight cities that remain, but there are twin cities. So if you truncate that, it goes to seven. And the last one is Myrterennial. There is talk about how at the very end of things, Lanray stood against a terrible foe, which was a great beast with scales of black iron, much like the iron wheel that Incanus is strapped to by Telu. So let's talk a little bit about Lanray, who is the counterpart to Selatos in this. Whereas Selatos is known for his great intellect and wisdom, Lanray is revered for his martial prowess. The other seven cities didn't have Selatos's foresight, so they had to put their trust in Lanray. This kind of has a Conan the Barbarian-y feel to it, trying to answer the riddle of steel, so to speak. Lanray is a master swordsman and tactician who is married to a woman named Lyra, who he loved with a passion fiercer than fury. So Lyra is herself a great namer. Someone who knows the names of things and the power of her voice could kill a man or still a thunderstorm. These are people who are used to having power, who are used to being considered great, and who are used to thinking that their concerns matter. So when we come to the Black of Drossen Tor, this was a massive battle that was three days and three nights long, and Lanray goes to fight the Black Beast. Though he finally kills it, he succumbs to his own wounds and dies. In the midst of this silence, Lyra stands by his body and speaks his name as a commandment. She seems to think that her grief and pain overrides any other loss that anyone has suffered in this war. She's not the only person who's lost a husband or wife in this, but it's only hers that she actually tries to use her power to salve. 
There's some hubris right there. Lanray hears her calling from beyond the doors of stone, the doors of death, and comes back. And then we start hearing rumors of Lyra's troubles, that she's sick or kidnapped or dead. Then we hear that Lanray has fled the Empire, Lanray's gone mad, or he's killed himself searching for his wife in the land of the dead. And then Lanray shows up at Solitos's doorstep on Mir Tereniel, wearing armor constructed from the black scales of the beast. Here, Solitos's sight fails him. He doesn't see how his friend has changed, and so he welcomes him with open arms, only to find that his friend is not the same person that he was before. And Lanray, for reasons that are nebulous, proceeds to place a binding on Celatos, preventing him from moving or intervening. And it's here where Celatos's formerly unfailing sight fails him and leads to the downfall, not just of his own power, but his entire city. So we've talked about the hubris of Celatos. Now let's talk about Lanray's hubris. Lanray's motivation here is the death of Lyra, which he wants to find a way to undo. And he believes that there is a way to undo it because Lyra undid his death. And he thinks that this is something that should be done. I think he thinks it needs to be done, but it's all very selfish. You get a lot of the Anakin Skywalker vibes out of this. Just as whiny, just as obnoxious, and just as entitled. In a world ravaged by war where millions of people have died, that somehow... Your own pain, your own loss is the one that must be avoided at all costs. And this is also where Lanray starts wrapping himself in shadow. First with the scales of the Black Beast, and later the shadows that will envelop his own face. Just as an aside, later on, Quoth wraps himself in a cloak of shadow. It's a shade. There is a definite parallel there. So Lanray goes searching for knowledge and quickly learns why some of this knowledge is forbidden. Now there are some theories out there that he winds up running across the Cathay. And based on Quoth's interactions with the Cathay, it does seem like it has personal knowledge of Lanray and the Chandrian. Either way, whatever it is that Lanray has learned wherever he got his knowledge, it leaves him fundamentally changed to the point where he forsakes his original name, the name that everyone knew him by as a hero, and starts calling himself Haliax. Now, if you look at some of the names that are listed, Aleph, Lyra, Ajax, Haliax, also Ajax and Jax may possibly be the same person. Jax is from a story where a man steals the moon. And later on, at the end of the next chapter, there's a little bit of Quoth foreshadowing his own hubris. Kill the Chandrian? Kill Lanray? How could I even begin? I would have more luck trying to steal the moon. Let's talk a little bit here, because there's something that actually just hit me about the name Haliax. So, Ajax, Aleph and Lyra. 
I think we got the Al portion from Aleph. Lyra gives us the Li or Li. And then Iax gives us Ax. Iax. Aliax. Haliax. It's almost like he's taken the power of all of these individuals. Maybe this is what's changed him. That one I haven't heard before, but that makes a lot of sense. Here he is, again, thinking that his concerns override everything else. And as a result, he's transformed into this being who is incredibly powerful, but also perpetually tormented. It's mentioned that he can no longer sleep. He can't even die. There is no end to this grief and suffering. This is why he sets his goal as the destruction of all things. Because a doom has been laid upon him saying that the only way he will be able to die is with the destruction of the world. And so he becomes an omnicidal maniac as a result of that. Because again, he is more concerned with his own suffering than with anybody else's. He understood how grief can twist a heart. How passions drive good men to folly. Yeah. For more on folly, go back to episode two. And episode 7. And then after this, Silatos puts his own eye out in sort of this Odenic fashion. And then yields a better sight and places a final curse on Haliax. In which he will be forever aware of people saying his name. Which may have spelled the doom of a lot of people, including Quoth's family. It almost seems like Haliax has turned that curse into... A power for himself. Sort of like how a min-maxer in D&D will take all these absurd, quote, disadvantages and then twist situations such that those suddenly become advantages. A good example, if you want kind of a funny one, is Darths and Droids, the character that winds up playing R2-D2. Min-maxes so much that all he can do is speak in beeps and boops. And nevertheless manages, through a little bit of shrewd DM schmoozing and... Bullshirting. Taking control of the narrative in ways that probably are disproportionate to his character. (laughs) Now, do you think that there's any connection between the fact that Seven comes up so much in this story and the Chandrian? You know, so Seven's always that magic number in stories. Or one of them. I think that... It is not a coincidence. We don't really know a whole lot about the others and what their role is, but the Sevens, if nothing else, I think they're connected thematically, if not literally. Now, this entire section has been gone over with a fine-tooth comb by a lot of theory crafters, but I think we would be doing our audience a disservice if we just glossed over them so i want to talk about some of them almost every theory winds up coming back to the lackless rhyme or rhymes seven things has lady lackless keeps them underneath her black dress there's talk about the black of dross and tor having something to do with that and i wonder if the seven things has anything to do with the seven cities aside from mere terrenial. The way that rhymes and prophecies are written tends to purposefully obscure their meaning. 
and over the number of years since this rhyme may have come into existence, it may have morphed and spelling, you have homophones. Or as they say in French, faux amis, the false friends, false cognates, where you have a word that sounds like a word in another language, and so you think they mean the same thing, but they're not. I also wonder if this rhyme is specifically about someone in current times, or if this rhyme is super old. If it's super old, if it's from the time of Lanray and Lyra, it may be referencing whoever led the Black of Drossen tour. It may be referencing the power behind the enemies that are notably missing from this story. We're told that this was the greatest empire that ever was on the side of our, quote, heroes. But if their enemy was equally matched, then logically this empire was not the greatest. It was equaled by another empire. We're also told by Felurian that mortals and the Fae had a conflict with one another at the dawn of time. So that could be where our conflict is from right now. In another parallel to the story of Incanus and Telu, near the end of this story, Lanray shouted and the stones shattered. Also, the fact that both Lyra and Lanray can shout and cause destruction, just Skyrim vibes again. <laughs> now that that's out of my system. No need to apologize. So let's talk a little bit about what can we learn because we've talked a bit about the literary themes and we've talked about the narrative theories that have spun out of this. So one of the things that I notice here is the downfall of Haliax and Selatos, again, comes from thinking that their own troubles supersede others. And we can find ourselves in similar situations as well. If you think about when we let our own pain justify hurting other people when we lash out in grief or anger or frustration there are other people on the other end of that that we can hurt without realizing it and we'll justify it saying we're hurting i think you see a lot of this in conjunction with how we treat people who are providing us a service how i want to talk to your manager has become shorthand for that person who is a pain in the ash and doesn't care about the lowly service provider who is just trying to do their job more than likely. Thinking that they can go over the heads of the people in the lower positions and speak to someone with more authority because they are deserving of more authority. And we can also see this in workplace politics where you might run into management that is just trying to exert their own authority rather than actually accomplish a goal. That can take a pretty deleterious effect on other people. Again, all based on one manager's insecurities. Many years ago, I worked as a call center representative for a bank. And because of my position there, had a lot of sympathy for other people who worked in call centers. And someone that I knew talked about how she had called, I believe, TurboTax 
to get customer service and asked a question and the representative said, give me a moment, I will have to look this up. Which is fair because seriously, tax law, the. And while she thought that he had gone to a different line or whatnot, she said, this guy is a forking moron. And he was still on the line. He heard what she said. And he replied, I am not a forking moron and hung up on her. We have to be mindful about how we treat each other. And how entitled we act around one another. One of the things to note here is that in the Greek ethical framework, pride was not considered itself a vice. And vice is not the opposite of virtue. A vice is an extreme of a given passion. And so the opposite of pride is not just this complete self-abasement. This is hubris. This is thinking more of yourself than you are. The opposite vice would be thinking less of yourself than you are. Pride would be dignity, just thinking of yourself as you are. And in these cases, it's that thinking that you are more important than anyone else at any given instant. It leads to a lot of problems. It breaks relationships. It prevents relationships from forming. And it can make it so that you'll never get good customer service ever again. Like you will meet people who never get good customer service wherever they go. And then you come to find out that the common denominator there is them. Like I have a friend who I cannot go out to eat with because he will always loudly talk about how he does not believe in tipping. In the United States, tipping is an unfortunate necessity for the people who are at restaurants that are your waitstaff. There are a lot of states where it is legal to pay waitstaff below minimum wage and expect that tips will make up for it. It's a stupid system, and I really wish that people were just paid a living wage, but that's not the reality we live in. It was a nightmare going out to eat with him. Everywhere he goes, his wife is always having to tip extra just to make sure that servers are taken care of. And at the same time, when someone blatantly makes that statement, most servers are going to say, well, I'm not going to expend any extra energy for this jerk. He's lucky if no one spits in his food. At this point, the server's only goal is just to flip the table as quickly as possible so that they can actually get someone who will pay them for their hard work. He gets terrible service wherever he goes, and he's the common denominator. I've been around people who consistently get bad customer service, and it's even worse when that person has also been a customer service representative. I think that's actually where you get a lot of the hubris because they think they know what good customer service is and they get really proud to the point where they judge themselves above all other people. And they judge other people against their version of themselves that they think is not virtuous, but superior. For a living example of this, look for the hashtag AITA on Twitter, which is short for Am I the asshole? And usually the answer is, most assuredly, yes. 
Now there's a little bit of wrap up to the section of the story that we read. Now that Kvothe has heard this story, he comes out of that almost dreamlike trance of when you listen to someone recite a story. He waits for everyone to leave and then has a private conversation with Scarpy. It's not very long, but it's almost as if Quoth feels like he's being seen, like really seen for the first time in years. And it reminds me a little bit of the bookshop owner in The NeverEnding Story. Storytellers and bookshop owners tend to have this aura of mysticism around them in fantasy novels because those of us who read them and those of us who write them have such a respect for the medium that is a book. Scarpy seems like he's walking around with a perpetual twinkle in his eye. There's something about him that seems to awaken a part of Quoth that has been asleep for a long time. This is the first time young Quoth has really talked about his parents since the run-in with the Chandrian. He actually talks about his father in specific terms here, which is kind of a slow awakening of his old self. The next little chapter that we get, there's a nice bit of fourth wall break. Adult Kvothe, telling his story to Bast and Chronicler, says that he remembers feeling unease, like there was something that was rattling around in his mind. He was trying to figure it out, but he was also trying to squash it. It bothered him, but he wanted to ignore it. He stops and he looks at the camera and he just says, I'm sure you all can see what I'm talking about. It's a very Ferris Bueller moment. It's a very Deadpool moment. What we see now looking at it is that he has met Haliax. All of these many, 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 many thousands of years later. Haliax covered in shadow. Haliax who killed Quoth's parents. Haliax who leads the Chandrian. And this is what sets him on his path to ruin and in ownership. It also leads him out of Tarpeian. Which is really good because I think that Tarbian could have wound up being like Marine, where there is no way out of it. The Miranese not, as Germ used to say on his blog. Good old George R. R. Martin. We're not going to go very far into this, sorry. What I think is also telling here, he's slowly putting the pieces back together. He's unlocking the door of forgetfulness. He says, the Chandrian were real, Haliax was real. Why had they killed my entire family? He's been living on instinct and living day to day and forgetting on purpose every bad thing that happened that night. Everything he saw, he's just trying to put one foot in front of the other for three years. He stays awake all night. And then he doesn't fall asleep again until the sun rose. I can understand not wanting to fall asleep while it's dark. Not feeling safe. Especially when all those traumatic events are just bombarding your brain. The PTSD is unlocking. 
it's all flooding him, all coming back. And he's reliving that trauma in the cold, lonely, dark. So now it's time for us to discuss the Phronemos of the Week. Who you got? So I know that you think you know who my Phronemos is, but you don't know who my Phronemos is. We had a conversation about how there really aren't very many characters in this section. There's Pike and his buddies, and there's Quoth, and Quoth is never our Phronemos because Quoth is an idiot. <laughs> and there's Scarpy, but I have a different choice. It's the little girl who spoke up after it seemed like she still wasn't going to get her way when she was asking for what is probably an approximation of the story of Dune. I chose her because she wasn't afraid to speak up, even when there were big kids around her, even when it looked like she was not going to be successful or be heard or be the one that was picked. There was something about her speaking her mind and the fact it's a little girl and that most of the time you're going to wind up with the default or the extra character being a boy or being a man. Like you see a group of three people and it's going to be two men and one lady. Most of the time, if you see a group of four people, it's going to be three men and one lady because actual equal representation seems very odd to the way that we perceive media or that we ingest media. So this being a little girl who seems like in other circumstances might be considered pushy or might be considered aggressive or speaking out of turn or any number of sexist things that you could possibly say about how a lady or a woman or a girl would be perceived. She doesn't care. She is not aggressing. She is stating her mind and stating what she wants. And we so often shush people, especially female presenting people, for speaking up. Or we shame them. Or we say, you're too aggressive. But then we turn around and say the reason that you don't get what you want is because you won't speak up. But she spoke up. She got cuffed on the back of the head for it. But she spoke up. That's a good one. Thank you. Thank you for surprising me. You're welcome. So now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and discuss an interesting fact. This week... I have one that covers the intersection between history and literature and culture. We're going to start by talking about Moby Dick. This is one of the seminal contenders for the title of the great American novel. One of the reasons that people keep coming back to it is that compared to many of the novels that were written in that time period, it had a relatively diverse cast of characters who crew the whaling vessel Pequod. In actual fact, though, the whaling ships of Nantucket were even more diverse than Melville's depiction of them. The techniques that the whalers used were actually taught to them by Native Americans, and many of those Native Americans would then go on to crew the ships. It was also a place where many runaway slaves could go to earn a living 
away from their plantation owners and find a measure of peace. Not to in any way diminish the horrors of slavery or to pretend that any of this was some sort of utopia of egalitarianism. The fact is that crewmen of European descent typically earned a greater share of the ship's haul proportionally compared to a person of color who did the same job. But some things never change. Some things never change. Nonetheless, though, it's a reminder that the history that we think of as really homogenous really wasn't. And there was a lot that people who looked and thought and behaved differently from what we thought was the norm have their own stories to tell. And one of those stories belongs to Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks was an African-American deckhand who's known for being the first casualty in the Boston Massacre. But his role in that event is actually much greater than that. He recognized the unfairness of the colonial system and the way it had oppressed him and his crewmates, whether they looked like him or not. And he actually was one of the primary leaders of the colonists who spoke out against the British and attacked them with snowballs and were in turn killed for their trouble. Now, we only found out about this later thanks to writings of the time, but if you look at the engravings that you would commonly see, if they depicted Crispus Attucks at all, it was just as a passive victim and not as someone who was taking a stand and actually making a move of agency. And in fact, many people within the revolution worked to completely erase his contributions because they didn't want people to think about how the institution of slavery was one of the major underpinnings of the U.S. economy. Right, because we don't like to own up to the things that we do that we actually know are horrible atrocities. Right. We'll do them, but we don't want people to know about them. It's interesting when you think of these early revolutionary leaders, you think of mostly just white dudes. And here we had someone who was of African descent and also Native American descent, who was actually one of the chief instigators of the American Revolution and who deserves just as much praise and consideration, if not more so, than people like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or Ben Franklin. So anytime someone tries to tell you that people in a given era were just all the same, just remember that the past was much more diverse than we give it credit for. And there are more stories to tell than just the ones that you may have read in your high school history books. I do like that. I also wanted to point out while you were talking, but I didn't want to interrupt. We recently watched the movie 1917, and generally speaking, after we've seen a movie, I like to go back to all of the YouTube channels that have dissections of the movies, a little bit more behind the scenes, a little bit more about the actual history of certain things like historical war movies. And one of the things that was pointed out that I think doesn't ever show up in an American history book is the number of non-white, non-European even, soldiers that were probably conscripted and 
tricked into being soldiers and the number of Indian people that were soldiers in that war. It is not something that we are taught about in our high school history books. We imagine the British, the French, the American armies as being full of white dudes. We think that these were all just these monolithic forces that you could reduce to the color of their coats and the color of their skin. And even within people who otherwise may have looked similar, they thought differently than one another. There's a couple books that I'd like to recommend. One is Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. It looks at U.S. history through the lens of marginalized people and calls out the often unsung contributions that they have made to our country and the things that were done at their expense in the name of the United States. It is a powerful and convicting narrative that will force you to think about how you read the typical stories of our history and our past. I'd also recommend Lies My Teacher Told Me by James E. Lowen, which goes into the myth-making behind many of our historical tales, and then also looks at the forces that keep those myths in circulation in our curriculum and textbooks today. So yeah, those are Will's historical book recommendations. Bonus interesting facts. Thanks. You're welcome. You do not have to eat a cherry this time. Better not. I gave you some good stuff. You did. And now we come to our time to share seven words. This time I have the seven words from the book. And oh boy, are there a lot of seven word sentences. Like a lot. And if you want to see what I mean by a lot, I will be posting photos of my highlighted book on Instagram. We are at Waystone Pod. And before I stopped highlighting them, I think I got up to like 10. That sounds about right. And that was halfway through this section before I just said, you know what? I've got ones that are good. So what'd you pick? Interestingly enough, the words that I picked are not from a full sentence. It's part of a sentence. Okay. These memories held only a gentle ache. Mm. I shared a very personal story in episode 11, which I then edited down to what was actually published in episode 11. That story is from over 10 years ago, and I edited it today on the day that we record the last half of episode 12. A lot of memories of mine center around things that are not pleasant, but my early childhood was very pleasant. And it took a long time before I was willing to open those doors. The doors of my memory back to before I was 10 years old. There are memories of my dad reading to me. He instilled in me a very deep love of books. I remember him reading me The Wizard of Oz and all of the Oz books, including the ones that were not written by L. Frank Baum. I remember him reading The Black Stallion to me. He read it to me for my book report so that I didn't have to read it. At the time, we didn't know that I was dyslexic. It still takes me a very long time to read through a book, but I love it. 
those memories hold a gentle ache for me as well, but it's not that rending tear that it once was. That's beautiful. Thank you. So mine is something that you said to me tonight. It went pretty meta. When you said, there are a lot of them, Bear. (laughs) For people who haven't picked up on this yet, I do call Will Bear more often than I call him Will. If you've watched some of the punishment videos, you might have picked up on this. Yes, as you know, there are a lot of seven-word sentences, one of which you had just happened to say to me, and I couldn't help but pick that. I have noticed that you really enjoy the meta ones. I do. I do. It's how my brain works. I also noticed that you fly by the seat of your pants a lot, and you listen for me to say things that are seven words. Well, you're just that enchanting. Either that or you just don't prepare. I do prepare. I just like to have room to improvise. So with that, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we discuss chapters 28 and 29 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Call to Adventure. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Did you come up with a, uh, a, 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 a name? I have not. Mm. Let me, and I actually haven't uh, created an outline for this yet. Let me. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no.